can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. As you turn there, is you know my parents, our grandparents on my mother's side lived in Northern California in a small town by the name of Crescent City, California. I had the opportunity to travel there two times in my life to to visit before my grandparents passed away, and there are many wonderful memories associated with those trips. One of the things that I distinctly remember is that my grandparents had a stump of a redwood tree in their backyard. It was a massive, massive stump. It had to be at least eight to nine feet tall. And it was large enough in diameter that at one point in its history, someone had built a gazebo on top and installed a hot tub inside the gazebo. That is how large and massive this redwood stump was. I remember being very enamored with this tree stump. It was huge. And it seemingly had its own ecosystem even within itself with the various species of bugs, plants, and fungus that grew in and around it. As a child, I just remember that it was just the coolest thing I had ever seen. And this thing was amazing. But looking back now, I realized that, you know, as amazing as that stump was, I was so taken in by it that I did not spend the time I should have spent marveling and appreciating the fact that on the other side of that backyard fence was an entire literal forest of redwood trees. My grandparents literally had a redwood tree forest in their backyard, and yet here I was focused on just this one stump. I had literally missed the forest for the tree in the midst of all of that. As incredible and as amazing as that one that stump was, it did not, it paled in comparison to the the majesty of the collective forest that was right there present. Later on in that one of those trips, we visited the Trees of Mystery National Park, where there are trails that wind through the giant redwood trees, and where you can even drive through a standing redwood tree. It is so large, you can they carved out a tunnel in it, and you can drive through. And just appreciating the incredible beauty that the forest held. The majesty of an individual redwood tree, as, as majestic and as incredible as these things are, being as, as huge in diameter as they are, that you could drive through them as tall, being some trees being over 300 feet tall. As amazing as one individual tree was. It paled in comparison to seeing the beauty of the entire forest collectively. And yet there I was, enamored at the one stump, missing the forest for the tree. Well, I think we run a similar risk when we come into uh, analyzing passages of Scripture, especially passages that are as rich and as beautiful as this text is. This text that we've been studying for the last few weeks, we initially took that, that overview look over the, the whole passage, trying to just see it from that 30,000-foot view. And then we have been taking these zoomed-in approaches each successive week the, week, the last few weeks, zooming in to take a closer look at the individual trees, if you will. Well, if we're not careful, we can also begin to get lost in some of the individual details and miss what the forest 
looks like. So we want to be reminded of what this whole passage communicates as a whole. Even as we're looking at the individual parts, we, we still want to see how it all fits together. And so it is important to, after we've looked at the individual trees, to once again take that zoomed out picture and behold the majesty and the beauty and the glory of the whole thing all together. So yes, we can behold and, and appreciate the unique branches, the leaves and the pattern that are present within a zoomed in portion. But when we zoom back out, we begin to see the stunning picture of the collective majesty that is before us. Well, my goal here today is, as we look at this passage, is to remind us of what we've seen in the last few weeks, to behold the, the beauty of the individual trees that we've studied, so to speak, but then also to seek to help us gain an appreciation for what this passage as a whole communicates to us and how it fits within this, this overall book of Philippians to see the majesty of the forest that God has placed before us. As we've seen Paul unfold this passage, we see him developing a string of arguments, a string of ideas. Despite our difficulties, right, he's writing to a, a persecuted church. He himself is in prison. Despite these difficulties, he wants us to persevere in the faith. But in order to do that, he says we must pursue unity with one another. That we're going to have a difficult time persevering when we're having disunity and, and fighting within and amongst ourselves. But in order to do that, we must be willing to demonstrate humility within our own lives. Demonstrating humility and deference to others. In fact, we are to be so willing to set aside our own preferences and agendas for the sake of serving others that we are to develop the same attitude and mindset that Jesus displayed when he left his position of glory on high, entered into humanity, took on human flesh, became a slave, and died the death of a common slave criminal on the cross. So we've seen how he acted selflessly, and not selfishly. He sought to prioritize others. He sought to serve others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark chapter 10. And as we have spent the last two weeks specifically unpacking the principles of humility that Christ displayed, and we saw how they relate back to the commands that, that Paul gave us in the earlier verses of verses 3 and 4. And we saw that Jesus Christ is truly God in everything that that means. And if we could have seen Him, we would have been, it would have been immediately evident because of His glorious appearance that He truly is God in every sense of that word. And yet he did not use that position selfishly, but willfully chose to enter into humanity and give of himself. The greatest being to ever exist took on the lowest position possible on earth. The humility of Christ. As we marvel at the humility of Christ, today we get to see the 
exaltation of Christ. The glories of Christ. Paul presents Jesus Christ here as the object of our worship. He is the object of our worship. Because of what he has done, he is worthy of our worship. And that is demonstrated by two realities. God has highly exalted Jesus Christ. And one day, all of humanity will also exalt him as well. He is worthy of our worship. And he has been exalted and will be exalted. So let's read our text for this morning. This is Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to take us back to verse 5 once again to begin to bring us into context as we come into verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see first that the object of our worship is exalted by God. The object of our worship is exalted by God. Verse 9 introduces to us at least two contrasts with the the passage that came previously from verses 5 through 8. In verses 5 through 8, we find the humiliation of Christ. And now in 9 through 11, we find the exaltation of Christ. In verses 5 through 8, the the subject or the actions of the verbs are performed willingly by Jesus Christ. But now here in verses 9 through 11, we find the subject of the verbs is now God the Father. In fact, the language shifts so decidedly that the the original language places a high degree of emphasis on the fact that these actions are now being performed by God the Father. Jesus Christ was the actor. He was the one who's performing the actions. He was the one who was emptying himself and humiliating himself. But now there's a decided shift in the language. And now we have God the Father stepping in and taking decisive action. Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. We see the exaltation of Christ did not come out out of a vacuum, but rather Paul directly ties these two parts of this marvelous passage together. They are linked together. What Christ endured through through his humility directly leads to his exaltation. Jesus Christ willingly set aside his own position of honor in favor of servitude and death. And now the Father steps in and takes over. He exalts 
the humiliated Christ. This calls to mind the words of Jesus when he said, and in both Matthew and Luke record these words, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And both Peter and James seem to echo that sentiment when they say, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may, at a proper time, he may exalt you. See, God rewards those who seek to act in true humility with a final exaltation. And there is none who humbled himself as greatly as Jesus Christ humbled himself. And none will be exalted higher than God has exalted Jesus Christ. None will be exalted higher than God has exalted Jesus Christ. This concept of exaltation is that of raising someone up to the highest possible position. Recognizing them as as higher than anything else, the highest achievement, the highest honor that could possibly be received. You know, we have the Olympics going on right now. And as when the medals are presented for someone who has won the, whatever event that has happened there, they, they have achieved the most, the person that has achieved the most, they stand on the, the highest platform, right? There's, there's the tiers and the levels. And the one who is receiving the, the gold medal, which is the most precious medal, the one receiving the highest honor, has the highest place. And is the anthem from their nation that is played as they are re- receiving their medals. They are given the highest honor. They are lifted up. Well, Jesus Christ, He has achieved the most. He has achieved more than anyone else, and now God is highly exalting Him. Well, how is God exalting Him? There's an exaltation of Christ. What does that look like? How does that come about? Our text goes on to say that God has highly exalted him. How is he doing that? By bestowing upon him the name that is above every name. Bestowing, giving. This is something that is, that is given to the Son, Jesus Christ. Many have debated the, the nature of what it is, the, what name is being given to Jesus Christ here. Some have suggested, well, it's the name of Jesus. He is receiving the name of Jesus because the text says that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But the problem that I find with, with that understanding is that well, he already had the name Jesus, right? That was the name that was given to him even on, during his earthly life. This isn't a new name that he would have been receiving if he is receiving the name of Jesus. Furthermore, there are others in history who have been named Jesus, so it's, Jesus is not the only one, even during his own lifetime, that bore that name. So I do not think that the author is referring to the name of Jesus itself in this passage. Others have pointed to the name of Lord. At the end of our text, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they they stipulate that that is the name that he is receiving. He is Lord. Well, there may be an allusion here, and I think there is an allusion here to the name that we find in, in covenant history throughout the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, the covenant name of the Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord. And in our English Bibles, we even know when the covenant name of the Lord is being used. I don't know if you ever paid attention to that as you're reading through the Old Testament, maybe in the Psalms, and you might see the Lord God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Well, that's not just capitalized because the, the translators thought that would be a fun thing to do. That actually is, is communicating that that is the covenant name of God that is used in that text. It is the name of Yahweh that is present there and that is translated into our English with the all-capital Lord there in the Old Testament. Well, in many places, this name is simply referred to as the name. It is the name. And we have many other passages that refer to the name of the Lord. And in many places in the New Testament, the title Lord is in reference to Jesus Christ. It is often the best way to carry over the the Old Testament Yahweh into the New Testament Greek that the writers of the New Testament would have spoken. And so thus we have an allusion to this Old Testament name of the Lord. That this is Yahweh, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And the significance of that. So some think that that is the name that he is receiving. However, I think we run into a similar issue with that. Because Jesus Christ is eternally Yahweh. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are Yahweh. This is the covenant name of our God. And he is identified as such in the Gospels. He is identified as such in the New Testament, even before his exaltation. And so he is already identified as Lord. He is already identified as Yahweh because he has eternally been the Lord. This is not something new that Jesus Christ is, right? Even the earlier text that we have, that he existed in the form of God. He is Lord. This is, this is not a new thing that comes upon him. So how then are we to understand this concept that, that God is giving him a name that is above every name? Well, the word name could also be translated as reputation. In fact, often the same word that is translated as name is translated as reputation in other contexts. And we even use the word name even in our current English in a similar way when we speak of, well, uh, that person, they've really made a name for themselves. Right? It means they've got a certain reputation that precedes them, right? There's, there, there's some, something associated with them. There's a certain public recognition or acclamation associated with who they are. And so in many contexts, this idea is present when we find the word for name throughout the New Testament. And I think that is what is going on here in this text. God has given Jesus Christ the reputation, the the fame, the public recognition that is above all others. No one else is receiving the recognition and the acclamation that Jesus Christ is to receive. Jesus Christ is getting the reputation and the fame and the public recognition that is above all others. But I do want to be careful to say that that even though I think that is the understanding of this word name here in this text, 
That that does not mean that the word name or the allusions here take away from the fact that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That is very clear even from our text. In the Old Testament, many passages that refer to the name of the Lord precisely have to do with His reputation. Right, The name of the Lord for the sake of His name. That has to do with His reputation. And so by associating Jesus Christ with the reputation that is above all other reputations is to associate Him with Yahweh. That Jesus Christ is Lord and He is Yahweh. Therefore, when God is bestowing upon Christ the name that is above every name, He is giving Him the reputation, the public recognition that He is, in fact, Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is assigning to Him the reputation that is due to Him, not only on the basis of what He has done, but also on the basis of who He is. He is Lord. He is not taking a reputation that does not belong to Him. He is not taking a reputation that is due someone else, but rather is being given that which is rightfully His. So this is further emphasized as we are about to see even down below that all of creation lauds Him as Lord. He is Yahweh. And more will be said on that before we are done here. But, but that's the concept here, that He is receiving the reputation and the glory and the fame that is due Him because of who He is and because of what He has done. So I find that that's what makes the most sense in our context when we consider that, that Christ has willingly set aside His own honor, His own position, in order to take the lowest place possible as a slave. And yet now God has highly exalted Him and given Him the highest reputation possible. The object of our worship has been exalted by God because of what He has done and because of who He is. Well, the object of our worship will also, will one day be exalted by all. Will one day be exalted by all. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we have the, the purpose or the result of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. God has highly exalted him. He's given him the name that is above every name. So that for this purpose, that at the name of Jesus and all the reputation that has now been associated to him because of what He has done. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. We see that every knee will bow to bow or, or bend the knee. This is a position of homage, a position of, of submission, a position of respect. 
one day there will be this moment when every being in all the universe, past, present, and at that point there will be no future. It will be entering into the eternal state. But everyone will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will bend the knee. They will bow before Him. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every living being, the heavenly beings, the angels, all that stand before Him and even behold the glory of God even now, they will bow before Him. All those who are on earth, all of humanity, will see Him for who He is and will bow before Him. And all those who have died, they will behold Him. All the demon, even the demonic realm who have rebelled against Him and have rejected Him as their King will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will bow. This text is comprehensive in its scope. Those, those three terms stacked together in heaven and on earth and under the earth, those refer to the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, and the realm of the dead. Everyone will recognize. It is comprehensive. There are no exceptions. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Everyone who has a mouth will acknowledge. That's the, the concept of confessing is a, is a public acknowledgement. It is a confession. It is speaking the same thing that the Lord is who He says He is. A public acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the Lord. I don't know if you've heard the saying that if you don't bow now, you will bow later. Well, this is where that phrase comes from. That everyone will come before the Lord. When Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven, there will be no escaping who He is. Right? There will be no mistaking it. When He is revealed in all His power, His majesty, and His glory, there will be nothing left to wonder. Oh, I wonder who that is and what He wants from me. Now, if we were to go through the book of Revelation and see how that unfolds, it is clear the books will be opened. And when Jesus Christ comes and He judges the world in truth and righteousness and judgment, everyone will submit to His judgment, recognizing that He is Lord. There will be no mistaking it. Those who are Christ's enemies will have no choice but to acknowledge the reality that Jesus is Lord. There will be nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to run, no more arguments to be given. This will be the end final recognition of who he is that jesus christ is lord paul here actually quotes the book of isaiah and this is where we see that jesus christ is clearly associated with yahweh of the old testament isaiah chapter 45 i'm going to read verses 22 and 23 where god says this turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and by my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
Paul draws from that passage, and, and he shows that this is the, the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. This God of that there is no other God. There is but one God. It is Yahweh. And this God declares, turn to me and be saved. And so we have this opportunity here and today in this life to do so. But even then attached with that, there even is a warning that there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, every tongue shall swear allegiance is how it is rendered in, in the Hebrew. And now Paul applies that language to Jesus Christ. That this is the one that everyone will bow before. This is the one that everyone will submit before. It is to Jesus Christ, ultimately. And this is all to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, everything points to the gloriousness of who God is. All of His glory, all of His splendor, all of His majesty. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that glorifies the Father. In the same text in Isaiah, we see that it was the Father's good will to crush Him. This was later on in, in Isaiah says he was pleased by the sacrifice of the suffering servant. So in that suffering of Christ, the Father was pleased. And then furthermore, it pleased him to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Seat him at the right hand of God, the Father on high, as the book of Hebrews declares exalting Him, giving Him the name, the reputation that is above every other reputation, associating Him with the covenant name of the Lord Himself, Yahweh. And that one day all will bow before Him. As we consider this, there are a few points of, of application that come to mind for me as, as we consider even within the context of the book of Philippians. In our immediate context, we have Paul urging us towards humility, that we would show deference to others. He gives us the example of Jesus Christ, and then he shows the exaltation of Christ, declaring that one day every knee will bow to Christ. And so we are reminded, even within this context, that we need to humble ourselves even now. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Whoever, humbles him, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And if we do not humble ourselves now, there will be a day when we will be humbled before the thrice holy God. So we come to him in humility. Second, we must urge others to humble themselves. They must see that Jesus Christ is going to one day rule and reign and, and we must come before Him in humble faith today while there is still time. While there is still time to acknowledge Him as Lord here and now, we must do so. 
Because it will be a terrible thing to refuse to bend the knee now and be forced to do so later. Jesus Christ will be acknowledged as Lord in all of his glory for who he is. And we can do so willingly, or we can do so when we have no other choice. But we will all bow before him. Third, I find so much encouragement from this text. Paul has been writing to a church that has been suffering for their faith. They're enduring hardship for the name of Christ. Paul himself is in prison. And yet Paul says here, history is moving in a particular direction. History is moving in a particular direction. History has a specific end. It is the glorification of the Father through the exalted Jesus Christ. And so we take comfort in that reality. Even though things that are going on in this world right now are, are difficult. In fact, we may look at the world around us right now. We may, we may see the news and see what's happening. We may see the degradation of things in society. And we might, we might lament and be grieved at these things. And we should be grieved at what we see when we see the wickedness and the sin that is in the world. But we know that Jesus Christ is one day going to rule and reign over all. That He will one day be acknowledged as Lord. And so even though we are enduring through a season of life where things are difficult even though we see the the tragedies that are in the world right now, we are comforted in knowing that history is moving in a particular direction and that cannot be swayed. That cannot be taken in a different direction. This is not optional. This is not what might happen in the future. God has declared this is the coming reality. That Jesus Christ will one day be acknowledged as Lord. And we will see Him for who He is. And so we take comfort in knowing the trajectory of all of history. The object of our worship has been exalted by God. The object of our worship will be exalted by all. I'm going to close with reading from another text of Scripture. This is going to be the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and this is in the midst of a prayer that that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And he writes this, For this reason, in chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Now see this. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. 
again, over every reputation that can be, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The object of our worship has been exalted, will be exalted, and maybe he be exalted in our worship today. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Let's pray. Father, the beauty of Jesus Christ as his... Lord, I'm but a a frail human messenger of your word, seeking to impact the glorious riches that are within this text. Lord, there's so much more here that I barely even scratch the surface of what it is to behold and to gaze upon the beauty of Christ. Lord, we have a responsibility to submit to the Lord, to honor Him as Lord. I pray that You would help us to do so, that we would humble ourselves as Paul directs us to do. And Lord, we take comfort in knowing that history is moving in a particular direction that your plans and your purposes cannot be thwarted. That Christ will reign. And he will rule. And Lord, we have the opportunity to reign at his side, being joint heirs with Christ. Lord, we look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But as we live in our days, I pray that we would faithfully honor you as Lord. Honor Christ as Lord and humbly submit to his rule and reign even within our own hearts today. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.